Father, I thank you for this church community. Um, those of us that are here, those of us that are traveling all over the place, um, ask that you, you protect those who are flying and driving all across the country, all across the world. Um, thank you for those of us that are here today. Um, we trust that you are sovereign over every little bit of this process. So the people who sit in this room are the people who you wanted here today. Um, God, we, we need you here. As you reminded me this morning that if we do anything without your presence, it's just futile. And um, let us be aware of your presence. We believe what you say, that when we are gathered in your name, you are there with us. So let us be aware. Um, Ask for your spirit to be opening our hearts to hear what you have to say to us. Um, I ask that you can speak through me and let your word and the truth that is proclaimed today, um, let that be received with open hearts. Um, God, we, we thank you for the families that you've given us over the New Year's. Uh, we think of those who had a Christmas um, for the first time with, without their children, um, without their parents, without their loved ones, um, and that would you be the comforter that you are. We've seen so much pain and suffering in the news lately. Um, we know that you, you are a God who heals the brokenhearted and who binds up their wounds. And so these people during these, these seasons that can be full of celebration, but they could also be full of mourning, I ask for your your, your healing um, presence just to be known with all these people, wherever they are today. In the name of Jesus, we ask for all this. Amen. I am a skeptic. Um, I am a product of my postmodern, post-enlightenment, Western, rational, Bay Area upbringing. Um, I got to see it to believe it. That's just kind of how I operate in everything. And... I'm thankful that I am this way most of the time, um, but admittedly, it can be a little frustrating because sometimes it makes my relationship with God really fickle sometimes. Um, I'm always questioning how he works, if he works, um, and when I look back through my life, there have been periods throughout that have been marked by doubt and, and unbelief and just feeling unsettled. Um, and I also know it probably causes a lot of stress to everybody who's in our church office, because I'm like the little kid who's in the car on the family vacation who's always saying, are we there yet? Except I'm always like turning around in my swivel chair asking, so why do you guys believe this? Or like, how do you know this to be true? And it'll be in the middle of like our designated like quiet hour. We're supposed to be emailing. And then pretty soon, like there's debate going on. And then an hour later, it's like, okay, sorry, I probably could have saved that question until later. But but this is just how I operate. Um, and so our topic today is a topic that is very personal for me. Um, it's actually personal in, in very recent history, too, because I've been coming out of this difficult season of my life where I've been questioning a lot of things and feel like God has not been listening when I've been crying out to him. And there's been those moments where it seems like there's no God at all. And so I've been coming out of this season the last few months, and certainly isn't the first time, like I said, this is just kind of how I operate. This isn't the first time I've gone through a season like this. And when I look back at these periods in my life, I see that the common thread that runs through all of these is doubt. Doubting what I believe about God, the Bible, church, doubt. And the subject of doubt, and consequently faith, uh, is one of the most important things that we as a Christian community can talk about. Um, It's something that for the last three years or so, as you have let me serve with you in this church, I've stood up here or 
you know, done communion or announcements or something, and I look out at you all as my family, my brothers and my sisters, and I know that there are people sitting there who have wrestled with some of these same questions that I've wrestled with. Um, whether it's in the past or they're sitting there this very day um, doubting many of these things that, that we're singing about and that we're, we're hearing about in the sermon. And so I know that some of you that, that sit here today, you have these questions of, you know, does God answer my prayers? Or, or I don't know if I really believe that God created the world. Or, or I don't know if I believe Jesus was God. Or I don't know if I really trust the Bible. Or even the basic question that is kind of behind all this, do I even believe in a God? Uh, and these questions are inescapable because doubt is always going to be with us. And this is really what it means, or, or part of what it means to be a finite, fallible human being, is that we have a limited understanding of God's universe. We have a limited understanding of, of the way that things work. And when Christians, when we talk about faith and doubt, I think there's a common misunderstanding that that faith is knowing something, that faith is absolute certainty in something. Um, but it's really not. And, and what I mean by that is, well, there's an illustration that um, John Ortberg, I've heard him use before. Uh, he's a pastor in the Bay Area. And there's an illustration that he, he gives, it goes something like this. He says, who here believes that I have a $5 bill in my hand? Like, actually, I want somebody to raise their hand. Who believes that I have a $5 bill in my hand? Aaron, why do you think I have a $5 bill in my hand? My man. Um, what I'm about to do is going to destroy your faith. And that is my $5 bill. And the reason that has destroyed his faith is because when knowledge is present, faith is no longer needed. Um, though faith should be repaid, and you can buy me lunch <laughs> afterwards. Um, John Ortberg usually uses a $20 bill, but I'm a student, and so I've got to just tighten that up a little bit. Um, I mean, this is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 13 that, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. That there's something about living here on this earth, that what we have is faith. But there will come a time when we stand before God and we see God face to face. And, and faith is no longer needed. Because then we have knowledge. We see God. We know God. Because we literally will stand in front of God. You know, a couple weeks back, Andrew Hoffman uh, he quoted uh, Mark Deaver who said that, that we in life use the cane of faith, but we long for the day when we don't need the cane to walk anymore. So it is really kind of futile for us to stand here today and say, well, well how do we eliminate doubt? How do we erase all doubt? Because that's a part of what it means to be a human being is that this will always be with us. Um, but we're going to look to Mark chapter 9 today and said to see how does Jesus help us deal with our faith and with our doubt. Um, so if you need a Bible, you raise your hand. Uh, Kevin's going to pass some Bibles out. If you have our little white ESV there, it's on page 721. Um, otherwise, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Uh, while you turn there, 
there's some important context to help us understand this passage. Um, that earlier in Mark chapter 9 is an event called the Transfiguration. Uh, and that was when Jesus goes up onto the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. And his, his clothes were glowing this radiant white. And Elijah and Moses, like the guys from the Old Testament, like really long time ago, they show up. And then, and then the voice of God is heard audibly by everybody there. And God says, this is my son. You need to listen to him. And the disciples are so overwhelmed by this, they want to build tents for Elijah and Moses. And they, they want to prolong this incredible experience. And then we come to our text. Where Peter, Jesus, James, and John, they're coming down from the mountain. And they meet up with the rest of the disciples. And they find something quite different. So Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Just follow with me. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to to cast it out, and they were not able. So that's quite different than that mountaintop experience from just a few verses ago. And and I know this story all too well, where I have these these mountaintop experiences, these God moments, and and I have these encounters with God where it, it just, it almost burns, that it's so good, and the joy is so overwhelming. Um, This is something I love that C.S. Lewis always called these stabs of joy, only to come down from the mountaintop where we return to our jobs and and our dirty dishes and spending a lot of time with a two-year-old in Texas for vacation, a lot of dirty diapers, uh, and we quickly forget. Just last week, um, Christmas Eve, I remember sitting in the my family's church in Texas, and this whole service on Christmas Eve was so beautiful. And I remember thinking about the incarnation in a way that I never thought before, and I was learning all sorts of things. And I, I was really appreciating Christmas in a way that I never had before. And the worship was just so rich, and I remember just feeling like I was on the mountaintop. And an hour later, I realized I was sitting in my car, getting frustrated, Um, at my aging father, um, getting angry because I forgot to buy this one gift that I really needed to get my mom, um, realizing that my vacation was coming to an end quickly, and I had this sermon to finish, and I started stressing, and I realized, what happened to that, that ecstasy of worship that was just like 45 minutes before? I mean, Jesus knows this feeling too. I love that one commentator, he puts it this way, he says, With the voice of glory still ringing in his ears, Jesus comes down from the mountain. His hearing is blasted by the grating noise of religious debate, human anguish, and demonic possession. You hear frustration in Jesus' reaction. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And the father's reaction is interesting, the way he says, if you can. You could hear that little bit of doubt in his voice there. And we can think that this doubt is probably caused from the disciples and their inability to do anything. Because the way that disciples and teachers in that relationship worked in the context of the first century here was whatever the disciple did was representative of the teacher. And so if the disciples failed, it could be assumed that he thought Jesus was going to be a failure also. So the man says, if you can. And then Jesus picks up on this phrase and kind of turns the table and quotes it back to the Father. Uh, Verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe! Help my unbelief. How honest is his reaction here? I mean, his son is dying, and he speaks this urgent statement that almost seems contradictory, right? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. This is the nature of faith and doubt, though, isn't it? I I think we make the mistake of thinking that these are two categories that are polar opposites, uh, but they're really not. I I like what John Ortberg, again, he says that the dividing line between faith and doubt is not like a dividing line between hostile camps. It's more like the razor's edge that runs through every soul. So remember, the father, he's the part of this crowd that was amazed with Jesus, and they ran up to him. I mean, the father had seen and heard enough of Jesus to give him faith in Jesus. So his statement, I believe. But he also spoke truthfully of his doubt. Help my unbelief. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. There's there's a lot that's going on in these last few verses I'm talking about demon possession and the nature of prayer and miracles and how this all works. But I I want our focus to be today simply on what happened after this father spoke these words to Jesus. And that was that Jesus acted. Jesus acted. He commanded the demon to leave the boy, and the boy was made well. And for the rest of our time this morning, I want to spend that looking at two observations on this passage. The first one is that it is the object of our faith that matters, not the quality of our faith. And the second one is that Jesus is trustworthy. Um, So let's look at this first observation. It is the object of our faith that matters, not the quality of our faith. Uh, This is embodied in the interaction that's going on between Jesus and the Father. Uh, The boy's father approaches Jesus 
and he's really wanting something from Jesus. He wants him to take action. His son is not well, and he's not been well for a long time. And he's heard enough of Jesus to know that, that he heals people, and this might be my boy's only shot at being well again, to getting my son back to the way that he used to be. And so the, the father, he comes to the disciples, and they can't help. So then he goes to Jesus, and right to the face of Jesus, he says, if you can help. And then he makes that plea, that mixture of faith and doubt. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I mean, does Jesus send this man away and say, return to me when you have greater faith? No, right? That's not what happens here. This man's expression of doubt was considered faithful enough. Well, how can this be? Well, we know that Jesus does not wait for perfection before we can come to him. I mean, the power of Jesus Christ to heal and redeem and to save and to restore all brokenness, this doesn't depend on whether or not we are perfect or we are worthy of this. I mean, is this not the nature of the gospel that we, that we proclaim? Is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? I mean, this is at the core of our belief in Jesus, and yet somehow I'm still hesitant to kind of live as if this is true. That, that Jesus does not treat us based on what we deserve, but he treats us according to his love and his compassion and his power. He is the one who is constant. He is the one who is steadfast, while we are the ones who are constantly changing. And we see this in Mark chapter 9. You get Jesus, he's at the mountaintop. Transfiguration, he's hanging out with these dead guys who somehow just appeared, hear the voice of God, right? The disciples there are not doubting that Jesus is the Son of God at that moment. But only a few verses later, which I don't know how many verses, what that translates to in time. I wish there was like a ratio, like a verse equals five minutes, so like 15 minutes later. But only a few verses later, Jesus comes down the hill, and he's in the middle of religious debate, and there's, his disciples have, have failed in healing this boy. And we look at this and we think, this is the same Jesus, right? Well, of course it's the same person, but all the circumstances had changed completely. And this is so often the case with our doubt. It's rarely that from arguments or from evidence that, that causes us to doubt the things that we believe. I mean, it's we are the ones who are changing, and we're usually feeling differently about something. Our circumstances change. We've lost a job, or we've lost a loved one, and we begin to wonder, God, do you even care? Are you even there? There's a famous tightrope walker from the 1800s. Uh, his name was the Great Blondine. Um, and he was one of the first people to go across the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And, I mean, I would love to see, they probably didn't have YouTube back then, but I would love to see video of this, because as the stories go, that he would do all sorts of crazy things while he was walking across this tightrope. Uh, one of them was somehow he carried a stove to the middle of Niagara Falls and started a fire and cooked an omelet. And he lowered the omelet down to a boat below, and they ate the omelet. I mean, it's, I'm reading this. I'm like, really? I can't believe this. Uh, one of the things Blondine loved to do was to take a wheelbarrow back and forth across, and he would always put heavier things and heavier things in the wheelbarrow. 
And one time he's standing at the edge of this wheelbarrow, and he, you know, there's huge crowds around. I mean, this is entertainment to the max in the 1800s. You get a guy facing death carrying a wheelbarrow across a piece of string, probably a big piece of string. But. And he looks at the crowd, and he's like, do you think I can do this? Do you think I can take this wheelbarrow across? And they're like, yeah, 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 of course, you're the best, hooray. And then he says to one man, they, they lock eyes. This is as legend tells it. He, they lock eyes, and he says, do you, sir, do you think I can take this wheelbarrow across? Of course, you could do anything. You're the great blondine. He says, do you think I can do this with heavy weight placed inside the wheelbarrow? Yeah, of course, you could do anything. And he says, get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> and of course, this man's confidence in the great blondie, he's only the average blondine at this point, or the mediocre blondine. Has blondine changed? Has his ability to walk across Niagara Falls or to be the greatest tightrope walker who's ever lived, has that changed? No. But now that the man has to get inside the wheelbarrow, it's completely changed his confidence in what Blondine can do. He's now doubting this man's ability to get him safely across the rope. And Jesus is the one who remains constant. While our circumstances are constantly changing, causing us to doubt in him. But we must do what the Father does in this story. And that is to keep coming to Jesus. That bring whatever measure of faith you have. And know that Jesus is the one who is great. Because you are not. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible say it is faith the size of a mustard seed that is needed to move the mountain? It's not the other way around. That we must keep coming to Jesus because it is the object of our faith that matters, not the quality of our faith. And as I said earlier, the subject of faith is something that's very personal to me. It's very close to my heart. And the prayer from Scripture that I've prayed more than anything else, than any of the Psalms or anywhere in the Bible, the prayer that I have prayed the most is the prayer of this Father. Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. I can't think of how many times I've prayed those words. And I simply invite you to take the words of this Father as your prayer too. I mean, if you have an inkling of doubt, no matter what it is about, take that to God in your prayer. Use these words, I believe, help my unbelief. Because at the end of the day, it's this vertical relationship between us and God that is the most important. And Jesus wants us to keep coming to him no matter how frail or weak you think your faith is. And the reason we keep coming to Jesus is because Jesus is trustworthy. And that's the second observation um, I want to make on this text is that Jesus is the one who is trustworthy. I mean, like the Father in, in Mark 9 here, we come to Jesus because he is the one who is worthy of this. And we shouldn't overlook the simple fact that although the Father probably only knew a little about Jesus, he knew enough about him to trust him and to come to him with his son, right? And I want to ask the simple question to you this morning. Well, do you trust Jesus? And I think that in our Christian language, when we hear that, do you trust Jesus, it's often only when we're talking about salvation. 
when we say things like, do you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I mean, often we're just asking, are you saved? But what about the trust of this father here? Uh, This father trusted in the person of Jesus. That he could come to him with his immediate needs for his son, even though his faith was not strong. And this gives us a great example for our community here, for Solana Community Church. That when we come to Jesus with our faith, no matter how strong or how weak it is, there's also a, a public element to this. I mean, if you notice that while the Father is speaking to Jesus about his unbelief, he's not doing this in private. I mean, this is in front of everybody for everybody to see and to hear. And I just want to say this. Our our doubts, they need to find their voice in our community because we are poorer without them. And that's not a mistake. I, I meant to say this, that when you do not share your questions and your doubts with your community of faith, uh, we are robbed of incredible opportunity. Because when we create this space in our community, uh, a place where we can ask these questions, we find out for ourselves, well, what do we really believe? I mean, is my faith in Jesus really a core conviction that shapes who I am? Because when we trust Jesus at our core conviction, we can't live as if that's not true. And sometimes we ask these hard questions only to find out that the answer is no. I don't believe that, actually. When you, when you press me on that issue or when I really start thinking about that, that doesn't shape who I am or the way I live. I don't think that's one of my core convictions. And we have to say, that's okay. Because we don't need to have a perfect faith to have faith in Jesus but it gives us an incredible, incredible opportunity because when we start to ask these questions and we find out what our doubts are, it really does give us a chance to learn and to grow in our faith. And when that's shared in this community, it gives other people the opportunity to, to learn about their own faith, to, to be able to, to listen to some of these questions and to start thinking about, well, how do I understand this? What, what do I believe about you know, any number of issues? And I would challenge you this week that if you can pray the prayer of this father, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. If you can pray this prayer, I challenge you to take this to somebody else. Take it to somebody in this community. Share your doubt with them, whether it's friend, spouse, your home group. Um, you can email me. I mean, share your doubts. Because we need to trust that Jesus can handle your, handle your questions, but also we need to trust that this community that, that he has given us, you can trust them too. And there's something that is wonderfully freeing about confessing your, your questions or your doubt out loud. I and mean, we know God already knows this, right? And we're not hiding these things, keeping them in secret. But there's something freeing about saying this out loud. And I, I've lived this out and I know this is true. And I know it's probably also scary for some people. You might think, yeah, I trust Jesus, of course, but I mean, I don't trust you, not Jesus. Um, but I think you would be surprised by people's responses. I mean, I'm just a small sample, but I have never 
expressed my questions or these things that I'm wrestling with or any of my doubts. I've never expressed them to somebody who I trust, who is a part of my church community, and had them say, oh, no, you, you shouldn't think that. Or, or you, you shouldn't ask those kind of questions. Those, those aren't good. I mean, usually it's kind of the opposite response. Usually you have somebody who responds, oh, yeah, I, I totally have that question too. I remember back when I was in college, I wrestled with that same thing all the time. I mean, recently, one of the, the most powerful, tangible examples of grace that I've felt in a long time is a conversation I'd had uh, with Pastor Hoffman sitting in his office. And honestly, I can't even remember what this question or this issue was. But I remember sitting there, and he's like talking to me, and I'm not really listening because I'm thinking about, I'm ready to say this to him. and I'm trying to frame it in a certain way. And I'm kind of scared because he's my boss, but he's my pastor. And like, what, what's cool to say? Like, is this crossing a line? Like, it was something that I was, I was just so anxious to say it to him. I don't know why it was, but as soon as I asked him this question, I remember him saying, oh, yeah, I have that question too sometimes. And I remember thinking, like, yes, I'm not the only one in the world that thinks this way. Like, it was the weirdest feeling because I seriously thought, am I the only one who like, has an issue with this? And I really think that's how Satan can work against us, is that he gets us to, to keep these things to ourselves, convincing us that you are the only one who thinks this. And that's not cool to talk about that. So keep it to yourself. And it just, it chews away at us on the inside. And then it ends up having such a more profound impact against our faith than it ever needs to be. And, and I would challenge you, if you're on the other side of this conversation, if somebody shows up to you and says, I have a question about this. Help me understand this. Um, I would challenge you to respond graciously and patiently with these people. Because it's probably going to be me that's going to come up and ask you the question. Be gracious with me. I, mean, I think there is a time and place for discussion, for disagreement. I think there's a time and place. I mean, there's been incredibly fruitful discussions in our church office where, when I will be asking these questions and people will push back. Um, but so often we need to do this prayerfully and we need to understand that, okay, this is your question. I'm going to listen to it and maybe not given an answer. I think there's a temptation that we want to answer everybody's questions right away. Um, but to be okay with just kind of sitting and listening and being patient with this person's questions. And to remember that our faith doesn't have to be perfect in order for it to be genuine. I mean, Jesus shows this here in this story. Uh, and so as just I wrap up our time this morning, I came across this story that I thought it was so cool, um, from a famous Christian writer named Henry Nouwen. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of him, maybe read some of his stuff. But towards the end of his life, somehow Henry Nouwen became incredibly fascinated with the circus, um, and in particular, a German circus that had some famous trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. And I don't think I really noticed now, this is like tightrope walking and trapeze, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe the circus is my calling next. Uh, but Nowen became, became such a big fan of, of the flying Rodleys that somehow when he was seeing them, he went up to them and he's like, 
I'm your biggest fan, you know, sign this for me. I don't think he really did that. But they invited him to spend a week with them, following him around, just learning about them, seeing how they do what they do. Um, and just a side note, there, there's two roles in the world of trapeze. I don't know how you say that. Uh, there are two roles. There's the flyer and there's the catcher. And pretty self-explanatory, which is which? The one is flying through the air and the other one is catching them. Um, and this is what Nowen says as, about a conversation with uh, the flying Rodleys. He says, one day I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troop, in his caravan talking about flying. And he said, Rodley said, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. Well, how does it work, I asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me to safety over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing? I said, surprised. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them. Or he might break mine, and that would be the end of both of us. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch. And the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. Life is like a circus. And this is a part of what it means to be a finite human being. Our questions and our doubts, they may feel like we are falling out of control sometimes, flying through the air. And we want to sort out everything. I mean, I know this is how I operate. I want the answers. I want to know why and when and how. But sometimes this is never going to happen. But we do trust the catcher. The one on the other side who can and will catch you. So some of us may come to Jesus beautifully and skillfully, gracefully flying through the airs, 50 years of practice doing this so well. Um, some of you are probably just looking like chickens flying through the air with your arms and legs bent in every which way, and you're flying, and you're about to hit him in the face with your feet, and you're freaking out. But in both ways, the catcher is good, and we must trust the catcher. And like the story says, the more that we try to catch him, we fail. We risk great disaster when we try to take this into our own hands and catch him. And this is so true of the nature of grace. That the very thing that we can never do, though we try and try and try, the very thing that we can never do, Jesus did for us on the cross. The very thing that we can never achieve, whether it's trying to earn our salvation or, or even just working hard to get all of the answers, like as soon as we get the answers, everything's going to make sense. But at the end of the day, we have to rely on the catcher because we are never going to do enough. 
And this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. That he is the one who did all of the work. And whether or not we are gracefully flying through the air or looking absolutely crazy flying through the air, the catcher still remains the same. And I know that there are some of you here that have no faith. Um, You might be sitting here thinking, this doesn't apply to me because I don't even believe in God. Um, I will say from one skeptic to another, I challenge you to do the same thing that I've challenged those who do believe, is take these questions to somebody. Voice your questions to somebody. I mean, ask the skeptic. Again, email me, afranklin at salonachurch.org. I'd love to hear what you have to say because the chances I've probably had the exact same question at some point in my life too. But I do know, as much as I, I don't know a lot, the thing that I do know is that I am hurtling towards the end of my life towards one who is worthy of my trust and one who I can rely on to catch me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the circus, the way that you, you show us things about yourself in, in some of the, the oddest ways. Um, thank you for teaching me about this, for reminding me that as much as I want to get the answers, um, at the end of the day, you're the one that's going to catch me regardless. And I thank you for that, and I thank you for the story that was lived out um, under your sovereignty thousands of years ago with his father's words. I thank you that his words can become our words, that we can come to you earnestly and honestly and eagerly with our faith, no matter how frail or how firm it is. Um, We thank you that regardless of us, you are the one that is constant. You are the one that is faithful. You are the one that is good. Remind us of this truth this morning. And I do pray that if there are people in this room that are having specific questions or maybe just big picture of, I don't even know what I believe. Um, I pray that you bring the right people to them and that as they voice their questions that um, there is a conversation that is filled with you, uh, that you are in the middle of all of that. In the name of Jesus, I ask for everything. Amen.